Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The second reading is from Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. 
The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. It's, hello, it's good to see you all. Now, to start tonight, I want you guys to think about your favourite horror movie or horror story. Now, if you're not really that into horror movies or horror stories, we all kind of know the tropes, right? Like, it starts out pretty good, it's nice, you don't? Oh, okay, well, I'll tell you, it starts out pretty good, it's nice, it's simple, you know, you've got the family, you know, mum, dad, little boy, little girl, they move into a new house, or you've got that group of friends going away camping for the weekend, or uh, people going on a holiday to a house in the woods, and it's very pretty, it's very picturesque, everything seems um, very light-hearted and fun. Then you'll start to notice some shady stuff going on. Like maybe it's the lights flickering or, you know, the big one is like when the camera cuts to a different perspective of someone else watching the group and it gets pretty creepy. And you don't exactly know what's going on, but it's suspicious. And then there comes that point where that one person goes and just toddles off by themselves to go investigate something and you're like, stop, you are going to die, this is bad, get back in the house with the group. And then all horror is unleashed, whatever it is. And you're watching it unfold and you don't exactly know what's going to happen, but you know it's going to be bad. And that is how we should be feeling as we read Genesis 3, because it is a complete horror show. Up until this point, we have seen God's beautiful design for the world. He's formed it, he's filled it, and last week we saw God come closer and reveal himself more to his creation, that Yahweh Elohim who God, um, who Shane told us about last week, who created this life-giving partnership between the man and the woman. It's a beautiful, picturesque scene. Everything is beautiful and people are living in harmony and everything is how it should be. But Genesis 3 plummets from this beauty to a deep, ever-pervading brokenness. And there are some pretty shady things that we see happen in this chapter. And the first one is that we encounter a talking snake. That is weird. And that should cause us to have some suspicion. And this is what we read, verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. 
But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what the heck is happening here? What is going on? And for the original readers of this text, their ears would already be pricked up and they would know that this is something suspicious because in the ancient world, serpents were viewed as possessing a mystical wisdom and they were seen as a demonic and hostile creature. So it's pretty weird that this serpent is in the garden in God's good place. So why is the serpent here? This creature begins to work against the order that exists in the human realm, the order that God plays. And what is the first thing that the serpent says? Did God really say? The serpent plants this seed of doubt in the woman. That is his first trick. He wants to uh, create a disruption between humanity and God. And what does the woman say? We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, this is also kind of weird because God didn't say that they couldn't touch it. He just said that they couldn't eat it. But it gets weirder because when the serpent says, no, 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 you won't certainly die. It's odd because, and he says, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. And that's weird because they're already like God. They were made in his image. And the serpent serpent shows his craftiness here. Because when he says you won't certainly die, it's probably better understood to be, don't think that death is such an immediate threat. And in one way, he's kind of right. Like when the humans eat the fruit, they don't immediately physically die. But in another sense, this is a complete lie. Because in eating the fruit, death enters the world and we see that the spiritual consequences for this act are far, far, far worse than the physical death. And it's also peculiar because they already know the difference between good and evil. The woman said she knows that they can eat anything but they can't eat from this tree. They know what is right and what is wrong. But the key difference here is that the people haven't yet experienced right and wrong, good and evil. They have only experienced good. But I want to pause here for a second. Because the logical question is, why would God put the snake in the garden in the first place? And firstly, I'm not really sure that we can assume that God put him there. He certainly created him, but the serpent definitely has his own agency. But regardless, as a result, we discover that God has given humans the ability to choose. God gave the humans the ability to work out whether they want to be with God in partnership or if they want to be God themselves. God isn't a dictator. He isn't afraid of people's ability to choose but he wants humanity to choose him. But now back to the snake, because he isn't really like any other animal or beast that we're used to seeing. Think about it. He can talk, he can reason, he can relate, 
And we know because of the curse a little further on that at this point he can walk. And he's sounding oddly human at this stage. But the Bible is really, really clear that he is not a human. He is another creature that God created. So if talking and reasoning and relating and walking aren't all exclusive attributes to being human, then what's the difference? What's the difference between the people and this creature? Well, we see in the text that it is our ability to control our desires. Desire is what the serpent is really tapping into here. He wants the woman to give in to her desire to eat this fruit. And that's a very animalistic thing to do, right? When, when uh, animals are hungry, they eat. When they want to sleep, they sleep. When they want to mate, they mate. They just do whatever they feel like doing. But humans are different. We have desires, good ones and bad ones, but we also have the option to act on them or not. And the true horror show starts when the woman gives into a desire that God wanted her to say no to. The text reads from verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Both the man and the woman give in to their desire and immediately things start to fall apart. I guess another logical question to ask at this point is, well, if they shouldn't have eaten from this tree the knowledge of good and evil, then why would God even put the tree in there in the first place? Isn't that a cruel thing for him to do? And the answer is, well, it's not actually not cruel. And that's because the tree represents an alternate path to satisfying desires. Like I said before, God is not afraid of humans' ability to choose. He gave that to us. The man and woman had absolutely everything they needed in the garden. It was paradise. But... At this point, the woman chose her own path to satisfaction. God is enough for us. He is enough for all of us. But the man and the woman chose something that they thought looked better. And that is the real heart of the problem here in Genesis 3. And the serpent, he was such a liar. He promised that eating from this tree would satisfy their desires, but it didn't. It only caused them pain and brokenness and separation from the good life that they have with God. And this tree, it acts as a symbol for the object of our desires. And it imposes this implicit question for us. Will you seek fulfilment in the life of God or the things of this earth? Or put another way, do we want more of God or do we want more than God? We will see that the woman chose the tree, the fruit, over God, and she cut herself off from the fullness of life. And this is the point where we should be jumping up and down saying, no, stop, don't go there, don't do that. Everything will go bad if you do. But she does. 
And the sad truth is we can't really look back on them in judgment and think that they were so dumb because hindsight's 2020 and in reality we all would have made the same decision. And because of it, humanity experiences a separation from God that is far, far, far more painful than a physical death. And I don't really, I don't have time to go into this now, but this moment also points to a more beautiful tree. In Isaiah 11.1, we read this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And this is talking about Jesus, who died upon the cursed tree for our salvation from this horrific moment where it all fell apart. But again, I think it's important that we spend some time here in this concept. Where will you go to fulfill the desires of your heart? Is it getting a perfect job? Is it having a good family, becoming rich, making the world a better place, leaving a legacy, finding true happiness? None of these desires are bad in and of themselves. They only become a problem when we look to them as the solution when really Only God is the solution. And he has so much goodness for us. Following God doesn't necessarily mean you have to give up that job or that family or that career or or whatever. It might, but it also might not. God isn't cruel, but he also knows what is best for us, even when we don't know what's best for us. And you'll find that trying to fulfill your own desires rarely works out. It often only deepens them or extends them. You get that job and you set your sights on another one, or you you have a beautiful family but it's not as perfect as you initially thought it would be, or you make money but why wouldn't you want to just keep making more money? So why not have these beautiful things in your life but also experience the contentment and fulfillment of God. Because it is really, really hard, and I would say impossible to completely fulfill them by ourselves. God is the only one who will cure the deep longing inside of us. And unfortunately, that is something that the man and the woman had to find out the hard way. And this is just the start of the horror that is unleashed. Let's read from verse 7 again. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This moment happens. This great horror is unleashed. And what is the Bible's focus? The man and woman's nakedness. That's a bit weird as well. Their first reaction when they realise that they have made a huge mistake and they they realise it in that moment is to hide. They hide their bodies from one another and they hide themselves from God. That kind of makes sense. We can relate to that. Shame, embarrassment, that naturally makes us want to hide from people. 
and hide from our mistakes. And the point is, or one of the points, is that the humans don't know how kind and how gracious and how merciful God is. They don't know that yet because sin hadn't entered the world yet. And so they hide. They're afraid of him. And this once harmonious relationship is now deeply hurting. And it just gets worse and worse from here. We read in verse 12, the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. This is quite literally every person for themselves here. God asks a simple question and this man comes out swinging. He says, the woman that you put here, she is the one who gave me the fruit and I ate it. He's out here fighting for his life against God. He's blaming God. He's blaming the woman. He doesn't care. He'll throw anyone under the bus to get out of it. And the woman, she's no better. She's like, oh, well, this snake, you know, this beast, it's his fault that this happened. And the very second that things go wrong, the people are turning on each other. They're turning on God and they're turning on creation. It's all about themselves and trying to protect themselves. There is no sense of these people owning up to the mistake that they have made. And we learnt last week that God gave the man the woman and the woman the man so that they have a life-giving partnership. And this life-giving partnership is one of the first things to fall apart when sin enters. And this is the first time we really see the wrath of God through the curses. Verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This snake is now crawling on his belly and he will eat dust. Dust is what fills the mouth of corpses. But now dust is what will also fill the mouth of the snake. He is now associated with death. But... This is also the first sign of a messianic hope. The enmity, the the tension, the fighting between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent points to Jesus. Jesus will get bitten and he will die. But in doing so, he will crush the head of the serpent forever. Jesus crushes the curse of death and enters the story and undoes the horror of the fall. Now for the woman. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In brief, I believe this means that there will be a deep anxiety for women through childbearing. From conception to birth to child rearing. And her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. There are a couple of things that this desire could mean. Some think it means that the woman will seek to dominate the man, push him over, rule over him. Others think it's a sexual desire because she needs him to fulfill her need to have children. But regardless of what it specifically means, we see that there is now an imbalance in the life-giving partnership. 
There's no longer equal tension as each party um, strengthens the other. It will be now one of ruling and domination and a huge power imbalance. And for the man, verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And very briefly, this is God's protection and favour being removed. The land will now will still provide food for them, but it will be much, much harsher now. This next verse is personally one of what I found one of the most interesting verses in this chapter. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And this really confused me. I was like, why is he naming her Eve when he'd already given her a name earlier and he named her woman? Why is he now renaming her? And I learned that this week that the man initially named her woman because of who she was. She was taken out of man. She was like opposite to him. But now after the fall, he names her based on what she will do. She will become the mother of all the living. And I think this is another distortion that we still face today. A person is often more often identified by what they do rather than who they are. The fall, humanity choosing to follow their desires and to fulfil it themselves, has caused a complete breakdown on every single level. The relationship between humans and God is broken, the relationship from human to human is broken, and the relationship between humans and the land is broken. And this brokenness is what we are still living in and still perpetuating today. None of us are innocent. We are all responsible for contributing to the problem. Humans are not basically good. We're basically broken and sinful and there is nothing we can do to make ourselves good. We need to understand that our sinfulness touches every aspect of our lives. It's a hard reality to face and our natural instinct is to deny it and be like, what about this good thing I've done? What about this? But the truth is sin touches all of it. There is no part that isn't tainted with brokenness. And that is why we need Jesus. That is why we need him to enter the story and to undo the horror that has been done and continues to be done. But even in this time of darkness and heartache and betrayal, we see the beautiful grace and mercy of God. The text says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God covered what the man and woman could not. They tried to sew fig leaves together, but they couldn't cover themselves. They couldn't hide from God. They couldn't cover their shame. But God did. He killed some animals and he made coverings for Adam and Eve. 
And this is more than just an act of mercy to prepare the man and woman for the harsher conditions that they are going to face out of the garden. This is a foreshadowing for the blood that God will spill and now has been spilt to cover for our shame. The blood of Jesus to make amends for the sin and brokenness that we are incapable of making amends for. But God's mercy doesn't stop there. Uh, the, end, the passage ends like this. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he was placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, on the east, the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and flaming swords flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now this tree wasn't originally off limits, but now it is. And that is because God doesn't want us to live forever in this broken state. He has eternal life for us, certainly, but it's a life where everything is perfect. There'll be no more brokenness, no more shame, no more hiding, no more blaming. Everything will be good and right. And that is exactly what he did. The rest of the Bible is this beautiful story of God acting out his plan to re-establish his presence with his people. He intervenes, he enters this horror story that we created and he brings healing and he brings peace and he brings beauty and most importantly, he brings life where there is only death. And that is what he offers us. Eternal life is ours if we want it. All we need to do is recognise that God is the only one that can satisfy the deep longings of our heart. All we need to do is look to him and choose him over the fruit of our desire. And there will be plenty of things tempting us away from God because the fruit was beautiful. And that's the point. It was desirable. But we aren't to take it unless God says that we can. He has a far better plan for our lives than we do. And he has given us the ability to choose what we do with our desires. The enemy is still at work. He still plants doubt in our minds every single day. But his promises are empty. There is no one and no thing that can give us everlasting contentment and peace. Only God can do that. He offers it to us for free. So the question that remains for us is what will you choose? Will you seek fulfilment in the life of God or in the things God created? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who promises to fulfill the longings of our hearts. We thank you that you have blessed us with the ability to choose. And I ask that you will help all of us to choose you. May you be the greatest desire of our hearts, God. Please, by your spirit, help us to see the areas of our life where the good things of this world are taking too much of our attention, the areas where the evil one seeks to tempt us away from you, the places where he plants doubt and calls us to take our eyes off you and fixate on the good-looking fruit. 
May your spirit please reveal that to us and draw our hearts to you so that we can be in relationship with you, Father. Thank you that Jesus has crushed the serpent's head and that he is preparing a place for us that is far more beautiful than the Garden of Eden. Thank you that access to your presence is totally free. And I ask that tonight, wherever our hearts are, that you will draw them a couple of steps closer to you. I love you and I thank you for stepping into the horror story of the world and making everything better. I pray this in Jesus' heavenly name. Amen.